God has no grandchildren. That adage has been a staple of evangelistic preaching for decades. And try as I might, it was difficult to track down its original source. It seems at one time or another to have been variously attributed to Corey Tin Boom and at others to Billy Graham. But whoever it was who first spoke it, the saying has been employed in the service of evangelism to emphasize the truth that every individual person must relate to God in a direct personal relationship. Grace is not inherited in the same way that sin is. I was born a sinner because I inherit a sin nature from my parents who inherited it from their parents, who inherited it from their parents, and so on, all the way back to Adam. The same, however, is not true of grace. Even if my parents were born-again, spirit-indwelt believers when I was conceived, I did not inherit their grace, their faith, their justification, or their relationship to God. Though my parents are the children of God, I am not God's grandchild. I am an orphan, unless or until I repent of my sin and trust in Christ for myself and am henceforth adopted into God's family as his beloved child, thus becoming an heir of his kingdom and his promise. This is basic gospel truth. But it raises a question. The question of what advantage is there then to having Christian parents? What advantage is there to being raised in a Christian church? Now, before you answer that question, let me suggest that the answer is not as clear as you might think. The reason God has no grandchildren is so often stressed is because it is all too easy to believe that he does. Familiarity with holy things carries with it an inherent danger of presumption. And with presumption comes the danger of contempt. Just look at Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In that parable, the elder brother, who represents the scribes and the Pharisees, who had near unlimited access to the holy things of God, to the law, to the promises, to the covenant, etc., The elder brother is always near the father and has access to all that he has. Jesus emphasizes this in Luke 15, 31. And the father said to his older son, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. The younger brother, who represents the tax collectors and the sinners and those far away from God, goes off into the far country and lives in degrading sin. And the younger brother comes to his senses, realizes the misery of his sin, and comes home to find grace and mercy from his father. The older brother, on the other hand, hates his father and winds up killing him. If you take the parable to its literal conclusion, understanding that the older brother is representative of the Pharisees who had Jesus put to death. So the question is, in the end, who was better off? The older brother or the younger brother? 
the brother who was in the home or the brother who was in the far country. Because it seems that the prodigal is better off. It seems that the younger is better off. After all, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And the older brother didn't love the father at all. So is it better to be the older brother or the younger brother? The answer is neither. It's better to be the third brother the one who never left home yet genuinely loves and trusts and adores his father. In this morning's passage, Paul is answering a similar question. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Now, Paul feels it necessary to address this issue because of what he has said in the previous passage that we studied last week, Romans 2, 17 to 29. In that text, Paul dropped a bomb on the Jewish presumption to being in a special covenant relationship to God based upon the fact that God had given to them the law and to them the covenant sign of circumcision. Paul even goes so far in that text to say that if a Jew doesn't keep the law, by which he means doesn't come to the obedience of faith in Christ, then he's not really a Jew, verse 25. And if a Gentile keeps the law, that is, if he comes to the obedience of faith in Christ, then he is truly a Jew, verses 26 and 27. Why? Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. Now it's impossible to overstate the radical antithesis between Paul's view of just who it is that constitutes the chosen people of God and the prevailing opinion of first century Jews, which was that being a physical descendant of Abraham and having both the law and circumcision meant that one was an heir of God's kingdom and promise. And so it raised the objection which Paul undoubtedly encountered in synagogue after synagogue in which he preached, then what advantage is there in being Jewish? What is the benefit of belonging to Israel? What was the point of all of this you are my people stuff? And at this point in Paul's argument, one might expect him to say, precisely, there is none. There is no benefit. There is no advantage. I mean, what in Romans chapter 2 has given us any indication that Paul thinks there is any benefit whatsoever to being an ethnic Israelite? It's true, Paul showed us his hand a little bit in 1.16 when he declared that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. He followed that statement up, however, in chapter 2 and verse 10 by affirming that not only does salvation come to the Jew first, but so also does judgment. He then proceeds to explain, as John Stott said, that, quote, there was no fundamental difference between Jews and Gentiles and that the law and circumcision guaranteed neither Jewish immunity to the judgment of God nor Jewish identity as the people of God. So the objection which Paul raises in chapter 3 and verse 1 is is not unwarranted. It seems to be the reasonable conclusion 
from what Paul has just said about Jews and Gentiles and their relation to God. And at any rate, Paul is eager to answer this objection lest he be misunderstood. Now, it should be noted that Paul is only going to touch on this issue of Jew-Gentile relations here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And then beginning in verse 9, going all the way to verse 20, he's going to return to the main theme of this first section of Romans, which is the universality of sin and judgment, that all men everywhere, in all places, at all times, are under sin and liable to the wrath of God and in need of a righteousness that they cannot produce. Paul's going to return however, to answer this question of Jewish-Gentile identity in greater depth in Romans 9 through 11. So is there any advantage to being an ethnic Jew? Is there any benefit to being a part of ethnic Israel? Paul's answer in verses 1 to 8 is an emphatic yes and no, verses 9 to 20. That's precisely the way he answers this question. I want to show you. Look in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? And what does he say in verse 2? Much in every way. Is there an advantage to being an ethnic Israelite? Yes, much in every way. But then let your eye go down to verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? It's the same question. Only in verse 9 he says, no, not at all. What's going on here? Is Paul bipolar? Well, no, no he's not. There is a sense in which ethnic Jews were and are at an advantage over ethnic Gentiles. That's the subject of this morning's text in verses 1 to 8. And there's another sense in which ethnic Jews are at No advantage over ethnic Gentiles. That's the subject of next week's text in verses 9 through 20. Now, this is admittedly a difficult passage. And the difficulty lies in the fact that it doesn't seem to go anywhere. At least not by itself. When you're reading through Romans and you get to Romans 3.1, it reads as if Paul, like many of the rest of us who can fault him, had a train of thought pass through his mind after verse 29 of chapter 2. He said, well, that's interesting, and he chased it down for eight verses. Then he determined that it was going to take him too far off topic, and so he dropped it and returns to the topic at verse 9. It would be wise, however, and I say this as a reminder to myself as well as to you, not to mention humble, to assume that just because I can't trace the logic of Paul's argument doesn't mean it's not logical. Just because I can't quite follow where Paul's going doesn't mean that the inspired apostle doesn't have a point. I believe there is a method to Paul's madness, and I think John Stott came the closest to finding it. Stott contends that everything that Paul said in Romans chapter 2, particularly what he said in those last five verses, 25 to 29 has called into question, at least in the minds of many of the Jews that Paul preached to in synagogue after synagogue, two objections. It's called into question God's covenant, and it's called into question God's character. The first objection Paul deals with in verses 1 to 4, namely that Paul's gospel 
invalidates God's covenant. The second objection Paul deals with in verses 5 to 8, namely that Paul's gospel impugns God's character. Now, each of these objections he's going to come back to in chapters 9 to 11, and he's going to deal with them at length. But they are so serious that Paul feels the need to deal with it now in brief and then pick it back up in greater detail later. In other words, you can't just let an objection to God's character go. You have to answer it. Paul has to answer why his gospel doesn't make God unfaithful to his word. And that's what he's going to answer. So Paul's answers to both of these objections we'll examine this morning, and then we'll conclude by asking what this has to do, and I think it has a lot to do with the way we think of and minister to our own children. Let's look at the first objection, which is stated in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? To which Paul's answer is, in verse 2, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, the two questions of verse 1 express the heart of the first objection. What about the covenant God made with Israel? Does being the covenant people offer them no advantage before God? Now, everything Paul has said in Romans 2 would suggest that the answer is no, No, the Jew is at no advantage over the Gentile. Both stand on equal footing before God. If the circumcised Jew breaks the law, he's condemned. If the uncircumcised Gentile keeps the law, he's saved. It sounds as if the covenant offers no advantage, and therefore circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is of no value. But Paul says that would be the wrong conclusion to draw. The advantage to the Jew, according to Paul, is much in every way. He then begins to list the advantages. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now that's no small benefit if you're the Apostle Paul. When you think about how highly Paul regards the word of God, how he views the possession of that word, the hearing of that word as absolutely essential to the salvation of sinners, then you realize that that is an inestimable advantage that was granted to Israel. In Romans 10, for instance, Paul is emphatic that no one gets saved apart from hearing the word. No one. He says, for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. To have the word of God is to have the opportunity to have faith. And to have faith is to have salvation. So to be entrusted with the oracles of God, which is just shorthand for the word of God, the Bible. To be entrusted with the word of God means nothing less than to have access to salvation. Access that the Gentile nations, by and large, did not have. They never got the word. They never came to faith. They never were saved. 
What higher advantage could God have bestowed upon Israel than to give them his word and through his word to give them access by faith to him? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Much in every way. Moses highlighted this privilege in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when he asked Israel, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law which I set before you today. And the psalmist echoes the same. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Israel was chosen out of all the nations of the earth, and they, and they alone, were entrusted with the oracles of God, his law, his promises, his gospel. And therefore, Israel alone was granted access through faith to God's mercy and salvation. The other nations, according to Paul in Acts 14, 16, God simply allowed to walk their own ways. Ways that Paul has described in Romans 1. Ways that led to eternal destruction and death. But not Israel. To Israel, God entrusted his word, and through his word, access to his grace. Now, as a side note, you'll notice that Paul says, to begin with, or first, as if there's going to be a second and a third. And as your eye scans down the page, you don't see anything else. He doesn't mention any other advantage. Why is that? Well, again, it's because he's going to list those advantages when he picks back up this theme in Romans chapter 9. There, he says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What advantage has the Jew? Many in every way. Now we're going to return to that list when we get to Romans 9. In addition, Paul's already said that the Jews were allotted the privilege of receiving the gospel first. So not only was Israel entrusted with the oracles of God under the old covenant, but they were the first to receive God's new revelation in Christ. Jesus, who himself affirmed that during the days of his earthly ministry, he was sent to whom? Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is that not an advantage? The advantages to Israel passed present, and future, depending on how you read Romans 11, are great. But Israel squandered this advantage through their unbelief and their disobedience. So Paul asks, does Israel's faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel? Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Rather, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The covenant God made with Israel was not unconditional. 
It did not belong to them regardless of their response. What was required of Israel in order to inherit the blessing? We talked about this last week. It was the obedience of faith. This was true of Abraham, Genesis 15, 17, 22. This was true of Israel. One thinks of Deuteronomy 28, where Moses told the people of Israel on the plains of Moab just prior to entering their promised land, he said in Deuteronomy 28.1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Sure sounds conditional to me. Verse 16. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Abraham, though he was far from perfect, believed God and out of his faith he obeyed God's voice. He was faithful to the covenant and thus he inherited the covenant blessings. Israel... The nation, by and large, was unfaithful to the covenant and thereby was rejected from receiving the covenant blessings. The posture of Abraham was faithfulness. The posture of Israel was unfaithfulness. And those two postures were eminently revealed when the promised Messiah appeared. You remember what Jesus told the first century Jews of his day, John 8? If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Only those who are glad in God, only those who rejoice in to see Jesus' day, only those who do the works that Abraham did, namely to believe, receive the covenant promise. So, asks Paul, is it unjust for God to reject circumcised Jews who don't do the works of Abraham, who don't do the law, who are unfaithful to the covenant particularly in their rejection of God's Son? Is that unjust of God? Or is it unjust of God to accept uncircumcised Gentiles who do the works of Abraham, namely who believe and who rejoice to see Christ and are glad and receive Him as their Messiah? No, that is not unjust of God. Has God, in rejecting unbelieving Jews and receiving believing Gentiles, has he been unfaithful to his covenant? No, because the covenant was always conditioned upon faith and the obedience that comes from faith. And Israel was disbelieving and disobedient. So what? Romans 11, God broke them off and he grafted in believing Gentiles. God had always promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. God, in other words, through Israel's rejection, 
has been unceasingly faithful to his covenant, even in the saving of believing Gentiles and in the rejecting of unbelieving Jews. If Israel would have believed, God would have been faithful to save them. Since Israel did not believe, God has been faithful to reject them, says Paul in Romans 3. In verse 4, Paul emphatically rejects the insinuation that God has been unfaithful to his covenant, and he does so in three ways. Let me point them out to you. First, he says, by no means. That's a very strong objection. May it never be. God forbid. How dare someone suggest such a thing, Paul says. The very thought makes him shudder. Second, Paul sets every unbelieving Jew on one side of the scale, and God... On the other, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In order to show that even if there were no Israelites who believed, God would still be faithful to his covenant in cursing every one of them. God's faithful character cannot be impugned, as we will see in a moment. Then third, Paul accentuates this point with this quotation from Psalm 51 in verse 4 in which David confesses that his sin has only served to further demonstrate God's faithfulness in his justice and his judgments. So to summarize verses 1 through 4, here's what it's all about. Paul has established that Israel, by virtue of its special covenant with God, possessed inestimable advantages over the Gentile nations preeminent of which is that he entrusted Israel with his oracles, with his word. Yet Israel was unfaithful to these oracles, and they have therefore been rejected, while the Gentiles have believed these oracles and have been accepted. And this in no way violates God's covenant. It in no way renders him unfaithful, because the covenant blessings were always conditioned upon the obedience of faith, which Israel, by and large, has failed to render to God. In other words, Paul's gospel, which he is expounding in Romans, in no way invalidates God's covenant. That's his argument in verses 1 to 4. The second objection comes out in verses 5 to 8. And it flows out of that quotation from Psalm 51, verse 4, in Romans 3, 4, where David said that my sin has served to further demonstrate God's glory in his judgments. So Paul says this, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is essentially the same objection, just coming from a different direction. Verses 1 to 4 said, If Paul's gospel is true and God has rejected unbelieving Jews and accepted believing Gentiles, then God has been uh, unfaithful with his covenant to Israel. As we have seen, Paul swatted that objection away rather decisively. In verses 5 to 8, the objection goes like this. Okay, so if our unfaithfulness, as you say, Paul, has demonstrated God's faithfulness, then what's the problem? Why is he condemning us if our sin serves his glory? 
Well, Paul's not going to have anything to do with this objection either. Both objections impugn God's character. In verse 5, Paul poses the question, a question that he's embarrassed even to speak, which is why he says, I, I speak in a human way. He wants you to know, this is not me talking. That if our unrighteousness provides opportunity for the demonstration of God's righteousness in judging our unbelief and our sin, then what's the problem? Why should we be punished if what we do serves God's greater glory? Well, Paul doesn't respond to this by pointing out its faulty logic. The logic of that objection is, is horrendous. It is not sin itself, but rather God's punishment of sin that demonstrates his righteousness. God's not, God's not glorified when you sin. God's glorified when he judges you for your sin. Therefore, the answer to the question, why does God punish us for our sin if his punishing for sin brings him glory is precisely, God punishes you for your sin because punishing for your sin brings him glory. Paul doesn't respond that way. That's the way I would have responded, but that's not what he does. Rather, Paul responds in verse 6 in the same way he did in verse 4, saying, by no means, God forbid. The end, namely God's glory, does not justify the means, namely our sin. Paul then argues from what he considers to be axiomatic. That is something every one of us can agree on, namely that God will judge the world. But how can God judge the world if he is unjust? That's how Paul argues. And what kind of judgment would it be if God didn't inflict wrath upon sin? It would be no judgment at all. But as we all know, God's going to judge the world and he's going to pour out his wrath upon sin. Furthermore, every sinner could make the claim that his unrighteousness serves to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And if that somehow excuses my sin, then all of us would be excused. In other words, the certainty of divine judgment makes the objection of verses 5 to 8 untenable. God must judge the unrighteous or else the entire biblical worldview crumbles to the ground. Verse 7 essentially restates the objection set forth in verse 5, only in different terms. Verse 8, however, adds a new element which comes out as the logical or illogical inference which some were drawing from Paul's gospel of grace. He's going to repeat it in Romans 6.1. Why not do evil that good may come? In other words, if God receives glory through the demonstration of his righteousness and judgment of my sin, then not only why am I being condemned, but why not sin all the more that there might be more for God to judge and God might receive more glory for his judgment? There's a certain logic in that. It's perverse, but... And you can see where they get it. Paul doesn't deal with this nonsense at this point. He just denies that this is a reasonable implication from his gospel. In fact, he calls it slander, blasphemia. And he condemns those who draw such an inference. But as I said, he's going to return to deal with this objection at length in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Watch how he argues. For how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Salvation is more than an external forensic announcement that I'm acquitted from my sins. It's a death to my old nature and a resurrection to a new man. 
So to summarize verses 5 to 8 then, Paul quotes from Psalm 51.4 at the end of verse 4, and that raises an objection related to God's character. Namely, how is it just for God to condemn someone for their unrighteousness if their sin actually serves to demonstrate God's righteousness and increase his glory? This appears from Paul's mention of slander in verse 8 to have been a criticism that was raised by the Jews whenever Paul preached that one could not be justified by works of the law and must, in fact, be justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, if salvation has nothing to do with law-keeping, then let's do away with law-keeping altogether and sin our fill. Well, Paul snarls at that suggestion now, and he's going to deal with it at length in chapter 6. So we've worked through verses 1 to 8. We've dealt with it in their context. Paul is justifying the righteousness of God in the way that he deals with unbelieving Jews. His purpose in this difficult passage has been to answer objections that arose from Jews who were offended at his suggestion that when it comes to the final judgment, what matters is not whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What matters is whether you have faith and are faithful to the covenant. Having the laws of no value if you don't keep it. Being circumcised in the flesh avails you nothing if you are not circumcised in the heart. Well then, if that is true, what advantage has the Jew and what value is circumcision? Those were questions that needed to be answered, particularly in Paul's first century context that where there was this, this crisis of Jewish Gentile identity going on within the church. But we don't live in that context. We're not faced with the same objections. But there is a point of relevance in this text, and I don't think it takes all that great of a leap to get there. I suggest to you that our children, my four kids, your kids, are in a very similar position to the Jews of whom Paul speaks in Romans 2 and 3. Like the Jews, just follow me, Like the Jews, our children have the word of God. But like the Jews, having the word does not save them apart from the obedience of faith. Like the Jews, our children grow up in a covenant context, surrounded by the covenant people, having access through a profession of faith to the covenant sign of baptism. And like the Jews... Baptism in water is meaningless apart from the baptism of the Spirit, which it signifies. Like the Jews, such familiarity with holy things, the Word, communion, baptism, worship, the church, such familiarity with holy things has the potential to breed presumption in the hearts of my kids and your kids. When they grow up singing Christian songs, hearing the Christian Bible, participating in Christian worship, they may simply assume that they too are Christians. That is where this text comes in to offer us a much needed corrective. And I'm going to suggest three applications from this text to the way that we think about and minister to our kids. Number one. We need to emphasize to our children that salvation comes only, only, only through 
personal faith and repentance. Being born into a Christian family and being raised in a Christian church does not make them Christians. Kids, I want you to look at me and listen to me very carefully. I'm going to talk to you for a second. Scratch that. I've been talking to you the whole time. I'm talking especially to you for a second. Coming to Connect, coming to Awana, coming to church, coming to Vacation Bible School does not make you a Christian. Reading the Bible and memorizing Bible verses are good, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. You too must personally, that is, by yourself, trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Repent, which means to turn away from those sins and by faith to follow Jesus. Or you are not a Christian. You must know Jesus and you must trust Jesus and you must love Jesus yourself personally. You must take the Bible as your own. This is a book for you. This is God's word for you. He means you to know it and you to believe it and you to obey it. Not because your parents say so, but because God says so. Nobody can believe for you. Nobody can pray for you. Nobody can worship for you. Nobody can obey God for you. You must believe Jesus for yourself. Application number two. We must realize that our children, nevertheless, have an inestimable advantage over other children. Namely, they have the oracles of God. And thereby, through these oracles, they have access through faith to salvation. There are children all over this world who will be born, who will live, and who will die without ever hearing the gospel of Christ, and they will perish in their sins. There are children in Nixa whose parents are unbelievers and don't go to church who never hear the gospel and they will not be saved unless or until they do. Now on the one hand, that startling truth should motivate us to missions and evangelism. On the other hand, it should cause us to fall on our faces in gratitude that God has given his word to us and to our children. God's entrusted us with the oracles of God. God has given us his word that we may know him and trust him and obey him and enjoy him and teach him to our kids that we may enjoy him forever in an eternal saving relationship through Jesus Christ. Which means, number three, 
I suggest to you that we should think of and treat our children as pre-Christian rather than non-Christian. Now, I recognize there is a fine distinction between those two things, but it's a distinction I think that we can and must walk. It is true that if our children do not personally repent and believe the gospel that they hear from us, that they will perish just like those children who have no access to the gospel. But does that mean that there is no difference between our kids and those kids? Just as the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, is it not also true that the gospel goes to our kids first and then to the world? Does not greater access to the word of God bring greater opportunity for saving faith? Does not the Bible offer me, the Christian parent, a reasonable, listen, a reasonable expectation, though not an unassailable promise, that if I raise my children in the gospel, raise them on the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teach them the oracles of God, teaching them the way that they should go, that they will come to faith and not depart from the way of life? Am I not to teach my children to pray our Father? These are important questions. And though they must be answered in such a way as to not contradict the first application, namely that unless they come to personal repentance and faith, they are not Christians, Nevertheless, I believe there is a real difference. Namely, there is a real advantage enjoyed by children raised within the covenant community over those outside. Or else, why do we do Awana? And why do we do Connect? And why do we read the Bible with our kids? And why do we bring them into the fellowship of the church before they believe? In a very real sense, when they are converted, when my children, when your children are converted, they are converted from within. That's why I prefer the language of pre-Christian over non-Christian when speaking of our kids, so long as pre-Christian doesn't become confused with Christian. It's true that God has no grandchildren, but it is also true that there is such a thing as a Christian family. And being a part of that family brings with it tremendous advantages. Though it does not guarantee the salvation of our children, it provides them with tremendous opportunity to come to saving faith and to approach God not as an outsider and not as an enemy, but as a child coming to know his father. And we want to work hard to ensure that our children do not become elder brothers. Because elder brothers, they don't love the Father. They are not saved. But neither do our children need to become prodigals in order to experience true repentance and faith. There is a different way. Namely, the way of the third brother who loved his father truly 
and personally and frankly who never remembers a day when he didn't love his father and who grows in his love for and his knowledge of and his reliance upon and his enjoyment of his father with each passing day. That's the experience I want for my kids and that's the experience I want for your kids and for the children of this church. So may they grow up knowing that the grass is green, knowing that the sky is blue, and knowing that Jesus died to save them from their sins.